Day. Because Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, was born in time and took upon Himself the penalty of our sins, we praise You, O Lord, for granting us access to Mount Zion. No longer do we stand in fear of judgment before Mount Sinai, afraid to touch Your presence for lack of a mediator and lack of a holy and perfect high priest. But now in Christ, our priest, our prophet, our king, our sacrifice, and the one who makes intercession for us, the right hand of the Father for all time, we enter boldly to the throne of grace through his flesh and his blood, broken and torn and bleeding for us. We celebrate his resurrection this day. And in that act of glorious and cosmic victory, every enemy has been defeated. And the seal of history future for all who are in Christ is one of eternal life, resurrection and glory in his name and in his presence forever. As we turn to the scriptures, Lord, I pray that you'd use them to reveal those areas in our heart that have a hard time believing these things and tend to get distracted and discouraged in a day which requires faith still. I pray that we would repent of sins, thinking too small of the power of Christ in us and thinking too little of the future that you've prepared and thinking too much of that which appears to be our reality right now. We know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. So we pray that our senses and our understanding, our confession, our hope would bow before your Lordship. I pray today as we behold your scripture that we would stand, Lord Jesus, before your presence in awe and we would bow before your authority in submission and that we would be lifted up, Lord, and equipped to praise your name and to glorify you beyond this place that we might be conformed to the image of Christ our Lord each day, even as by the Spirit of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> today, what a great and awesome privilege it is to fellowship with a few more of you today, even as we pray for the safe return of the remaining on vacation and the quick healing for those who are struggling with illnesses yet this season. So let's be mindful of them in our prayers and also be thankful for every day that the Lord gives us by His grace to gather in His name, both the ability and the freedom of our nation such as it is now and also the health that He grants us to praise His name. Today we gather at the communion feast, the royal communion table of our Lord. And we do so first by beholding and partaking in His holy word, followed by the elements before you today, and then a fellowship meal to close, which Jude calls a love feast. So this is a glorious day for the saints to gather in the name of Jesus, to be obedient to the call to worship, and to behold its significance and meaning more deeply from the scriptures. So let's do that by turning to Jude today. We'll consider two verses primarily in this message, verses 14 and 15. Jude, of course, just one chapter long. The title of this morning's sermon is Holy versus Ungodly. Jude speaks of in a citation and prophecy of the holy ones judging the ungodly. And so that will be our primary focus, its meaning and context today. Much like the other references in this book, this epistle to equip the church, our goal in preaching today will be to magnify the message of Jude by means of its context. I've made the case that Jude presupposes that his hearers have quite the familiarity with the brief references that he employs. And to the degree that we may not know what the book of 1 Enoch says, may not be in our daily reading, 
it will behoove us to catch up on some of the context and therefore grasp more of the weight of this great epistle. With that introduction in your hearts, standing in reverence before the Lord, would you rise for the reading of the scriptures today as you're able? Let us behold God's word. This is the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. Here are the holy scriptures. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me give you a little review in context. Jude, in his painstaking, though brief effort to provide thorough context for discernment, he introduces an anecdote today from a well-known Jewish extra-biblical work, at least well-known at the time. So this would be in some reference, or some people might call First Enoch, or others refer to as the Book of Enoch. This was, again, not in the Holy Scriptures, but an attending piece of literature, something like maybe a commentary we might use today, near as the historians can figure, written in the first or second century before Jesus came. So in this ancient document, the shadowy Old Testament patriarch, Enoch, is quoted, pronouncing final judgment on the unrepentant enemies of the Lord. So Enoch, the seventh from Adam, as Jude describes him, and as a few details are recorded of him in Scripture, is cited as prophesying against the enemies of the Lord. And this is fitting for several reasons, which we'll see, I trust, in the course of this message today. But of course, the most obvious point in context is Jude's primary purpose in his epistle is to prepare us to discern and oppose enemies. So Enoch was one who discerned and opposed enemies in his day, according to Jude. And so he uses him as a positive example. Through the, though the book of Enoch, as I referenced before, is not, nor should it be, I would argue, included in the canon, which means the list of authority-inspired books of the Bible. So the book of Enoch is not in the Bible, nor should it be. Nevertheless, Jude confirms at least the validity of this quote and its origin in verses 14b and 15. In other words, my position is, though the book of Enoch cannot be taken as the word of God, we have confirmation that Enoch at least said this, because Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes him as saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones, etc. So, Jude then adds in this citation... Yet another category of literary device, so way of speaking, in his literature or in his letter to underscore his message of warning and equipping the early church. This adds to the list of examples we've noted so far. Jude has used consequences in redemptive history in verses 5 through 7 to make his point. Do you remember this? In verse 5, I want to remind you, he said, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. A consequence from redemptive history. The plight of the uh, bickering and backbiting and complaining Israelites 
when they were led out of Egypt by our Lord himself. Likewise, there's a consequence listed in verse 6 of the angels who were cast out of heaven for their rebellion against the Lord. And as Jude says, did not stay in their own proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. These received swift and utter consequences, including eternal chains, gloomy darkness, awaiting the great day of judgment. Perhaps the day that Enoch himself prophesied of, and Jude quotes in our text. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, another example in history of consequences that, are, that fall, fell upon the enemies of the Lord. Now to this he adds other ways of making his point as well. Not just these consequences from redemptive history, but an argument one could say from lesser to greater, or another way of speaking, citing the minimal case. And in this instance, Jude basically makes his point this way. If uh, the archangel Michael, in all of his glory, being one of those celestial, unfallen, beautiful, heavenly beings, did not presume to judge the most wicked of creatures, Satan himself, because of his reverence for the Lord, how much more we, how much more should we, argument from lesser to greater, walk in humility and not be presumptuous or so bold as to speak on the Lord's behalf or to subvert, circumvent his authority. Thus, we see the difference between an enemy of the Lord and his gospel and his church and those who are humble followers and defer to the authority of the Lord. So we have arguments from history, consequences from history. We have an argument from lesser to greater or citing the minimal case. We have three personal examples of rebellion and those are uh, listed in verse 11 as Cain, Balaam, and Korah, negative examples. And then our last message focused on six poetic analogies of what the wicked are like in verses 12 through 13. That would be these references to hidden reefs, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. And now today we add yet another poetic or another literary device to make Jude's point. And here he adds the prophetic testimony of a pre-flood believer, Enoch, in verses 14 and 15. So we might ask ourselves, perhaps this question has occurred to you, seems like we've spent some time in Jude, but I looked at this book and last I checked, it only has 25 verses. How can a book that's so short support multiple sermons? This is number five for us. And a partial answer is found in the depth of context, I would say. Jude's various references to events and persons are deep and profound. And understanding their context gives us an idea of what he's getting at. And so we've chosen to spend some extra time, therefore, studying things like the Exodus, celestial judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, spiritual warfare, Cain, Balaam, Korah, those poetic analogies. And today is no exception with this reference to a shadowy and mysterious figure, but a powerful and glorious one, Enoch from the Old Testament, pre-flood, seventh from Noah. So with that introduction, let me organize the rest of our message this way. Jude's words heading, Jude's words clarify by answers to the following. Jude's words clarified by answers to the following. Number one, who was Enoch? Number two, who are the holy ones? And number three, who are the ungodly? So today, we'll seek to answer these questions from the context of Jude and the references from which he draws. First of all, who is Enoch? 
Verse 14 again in Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So who was this man? Kids, can you tell us a fun fact about Enoch? Does anyone know anything about him? What's a fun fact about Enoch? Usually people remember one specific thing for sure. Anybody? What was special about Enoch? Does anyone recall? Shout it out if you know. He never died. Very good, Owen. Thank you. Well, if he didn't die, what happened to him? Does anyone know? Excellent. God led him up to heaven. He went straight to heaven as far as we can tell. Very good. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 5, if you would. In Genesis 5, we have, as you recall, many different principles laid out. In the beginning of the book of the Bible, we have principles established according to creation and a post-fall world, holiness versus wickedness. And this all shapes the context from which Jude draws. In chapter 5, we see a list of descendants. Uh, Verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then it goes on to give this sort of genealogical formula. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his name, and named him Seth. So we hear, see here indicated by that reference to Seth that this is the holy line, if you will. This is the line, the seed, those, the family line preserved to bring the Messiah and to secure the redemptive future plans of the Lord according to the seed of the woman, as it were, and Seth and his descendants. Now, in the line of these descendants, we come to one in verse 22. Uh, Let's go back to 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Note some of these ages. 800 years, 895 years, 830 years, 910 years, 840 years, 905 years, 815. You see the average there? Uh, Late 800s, people are living a long time. 800 to 900 years. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were, who knows? How old was Enoch when he didn't die but stepped into glory? Anyone know? 365. For those of you cheating by reading the scriptures, good answer. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Do you notice something conspicuously different in the record? Even when we compare the years of leaving this earth, Everybody else is living like 800 to 900 years, with the exception of Enoch. At 365 years, poof, he's gone. Why? Because he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So this is Enoch. Enoch, let me uh, frame his legacy this way. He walked not according to the way of Cain, but instead according to the way of Abel. He walked, not according, you could say it another way, to the seed of the serpent, but instead according to the seed of the woman. This is important because Jude is drawing on this context, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. 
The enemy seeks to muddy and blur the lines between the holy and the ungodly, between the righteous and the condemned, between that which is pure, just, true, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, and that which is depraved and utterly sinful and deserving of judgment, hell-worthy and condemned. So Jude is drawing these lines nice and distinct once again for the church. And by drawing these sharp distinctions and referring in context to the unified teaching of Scripture, drawing a sharp contrast between good and evil, he's preparing and equipping us to recognize false teachers, errors, and things that might otherwise deceive us or distract us in our goal to glorify Christ and to walk worthy of the call. Thus he draws on the history of the scriptures themselves and even ancient patriarchs in a time where the lines were drawn right after the fall between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He has referred to the way of Cain, that is Jude has in verse 11. Woe to them, the unbeliever, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Three personal examples of those who led others into rebellion, Cain, Balaam, and error. What is the way of Cain? Well, whatever it is, it's opposite to the way of Abel. It's opposite to the way of Seth, the way of the seed of the woman. It's opposite to the way of Enoch. This background is helpful. Jude describes gospel enemies as those who walk according to the way of Cain. In contrast, he cites the authoritative prophecy of ancient of our ancient godly forebear, Enoch, and recognizing the difference between the ungodly and the holy even in his day and declaring repent or else. The juxtaposition is found in Scripture all the way from the beginning. Since the world fell into sin through our forebears, Adam and Eve, this antithesis or sharp difference remains. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman And remember that that distinction exists today's saints, just as the people needed to be reminded in Jude's day as well. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. There's a couple references in, or there's a reference in Hebrews as well to this mysterious Old Testament figure, Enoch. And we also have a lineage. So the author of Hebrews picks up on this same kind of theme, And he's tracing back the testimony of the faithful. Who does he begin with? And why why might we call Enoch walking according to the way of Cain? Well, here's corroboration for that assumption in Hebrews 11.4. The book opens with referencing this famous righteous man, Old Testament, a man who walked by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And who is the next in the line of the faithful recorded by the author of Hebrews? Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, draw near like Enoch, I hasten to add, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And of course, that would mean by contrast, he judges those who do not. And that's what Enoch himself, we find in the book of Jude, stood for. Enoch later was succeeded by Noah, 
whom our author in Hebrews references in verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. That day of demarcation, of the line drawn, of the reckoning of the Lord, of the coming day of judgment, arrives in this legacy of Noah. By this, he condemned the world, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So there's many different ways to say it. But the Bible uses the legacy of righteousness, those who walk by faith, the testimony of God by His grace, preserving a remnant, redeeming a people who had faith in the future Messiah, describes it as a difference between the ungodly and the holy, the way of the serpent and the way of woman, the way of Cain and the way of Abel, if you will. Listed in this early uh, record of those who followed the Lord is Enoch himself, and he is preceded by Cain and followed by Noah. Enoch was a man assumed into heaven. That is, as the kids reminded us, he stepped into glory, bypassing the ordinary curse, death itself. He was commended as having pleased God. He walked with the Lord. Among his commendable acts, that which he is, his legacy, that positive elements of his legacy, the redeemed character of this ancient godly man, among those things that he is celebrated for is the testimony of his prophecy in Jude 14 and 15. This was a legacy and an era marked by distinctions. And this coming judgment on those who would not repent was one way that Enoch proclaimed this truth in his day. We note these differences are stark and the godly would draw attention to them. And the first, among the first of those who proclaimed this truth was Enoch. And uh, this is in sharp contrast to those who followed in the way of Cain. Don't get confused as you're reading the book of Genesis. Sometimes people had the same name, but their character couldn't be any more different. It's sort of an irony. It kind of sets up a message that there might be superficial similarities, but substantially there's a difference. In other words, the first son of Cain is Enoch. A city is named after him, but he is according to the ungodly line. So as my kids say, there's a bad Enoch and a good Enoch. That's quite right. Later in the line of Cain and the bad Enoch, there's a bad Lamech who celebrates his arrogance and defiance and rebellion by singing one of the first pop songs in all of history, talking about how he takes it, uh, the right to judge in and of himself and uh, kills a man for uh, offending him and so forth. And he sings it to his multiple brides, Ada and Zillah, who are sitting there listening to this pompous, ridiculous man speak uh, in, from his way of ungodliness. So this is the context from which Jude draws. Who was Enoch? He was one who walked in the way of Abel. He was one who pointed out the difference between the holy and the ungodly. He was a prophetic icon. He was one who, similar to Melchizedek, is representative in, and symbolic in his character of others who would follow in his legacy and in his example. Our text today reveals Enoch as a godly man who went before, who had singular attributes. He walked with God. He walked straight into glory. He proclaimed truth while he was here, but there isn't a lot known about him. That which is known are singular attributes. He was a man who so abided in the presence of God that one day he stepped into eternity, bypassing ordinary death. 
So this is a prophetic reality, much like Melchizedek. Little is known about Melchizedek. He's also kind of shadowy and mysterious. But New Testament authors expand. An entire chapter in Hebrews is dedicated to the office and the ministry and the priesthood of Melchizedek as a forerunner of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 7, it identified that legacy of old of the one to whom Abraham paid tithes in the book of Genesis. And then it draws attention to him and his singular attributes as an icon, a prophetic reality of what was to come. So much like uh, Melchizedek, uh, so Enoch represents the uh, several things that God has purposed. The goal of sanctification. As we are saved and the Lord changes our hearts and transforms us into his image, this is an, a process which increasingly draws us to glory, as it were. And on that day when we are resurrected and when we are, uh, go to heaven, as it were, our sanctification is complete. In a similar way, there was a forerunner, Enoch, who so walked with God that as he grew closer to him, he eventually stepped into glory. So he prophetically speaks of this. Also, redemption unto resurrection. The hope of resurrection is not a New Testament uh, innovation, but it's a testimony of all of Scripture. The author of Hebrews says that the ancient men who loved the Lord and followed him believed in resurrection. This was the faith in part that Abraham had. The Lord could raise the covenant son Isaac from the dead, even if the Lord required him to sacrifice his son. On what did Abraham base his faith? Well, perhaps in part the Lord preaching his word to him through the testimony of his forebearer, Enoch, who was resurrected, as it were, bypassed ordinary death, assumed straight into glory. Likewise, a sovereign way through the flaming sword of Eden's gate. Remember, the man's historical memory would have been probably much sharper, and there would have been tales told to several generations about great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam and the day that he was cast out of the place of God's abiding presence, the perfect and holy context of that elevated plain of Eden. And then as the door slammed shut, the flaming cherubim who with their swords guarded the entry. But there was one who held out hope to return through that door into the presence of God. And that would be Enoch. God did a miraculous work in his life and somehow through his redemptive power made a way to return to the presence of the Lord. So who is Enoch? He was one who represented these kinds of things. A man who stood for righteousness instead of the ungodliness around him. A man who understood the difference. A man who testified in his own experience of the grace of God, of the hope of glory in spite of sin. Enoch was a gospel preacher. Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. And Jude cites a pre-flood prophecy of final judgment. Enoch, I did a little math, he was assumed at 365 years old. Methuselah died at 969. Lamech died at 777. Noah died at 950. And if you kind of line up the timelines, what you come to find out is that Enoch, uh, the 69 years after he stepped into glory, Noah was born. And 669 years after Enoch stepped into glory, the flood came. So what does this mean? It means that this oracle of judgment would soon be corroborated and confirmed by the great flood. Back in Jude 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. 
To the ungodly and wicked of his day, Enoch said, Behold, the Lord came, which is a way of speaking of the certainty of coming judgment in this past tense, prophetic past tense, with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict of the ungodly, all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. So just as sure as God's word is certain, Enoch sees into the future, as it were, and proclaims to the ungodly of his day, there is a day of reckoning coming. No doubt people laughed at him as they did in Noah's day and did not heed these words of warning. But his words were proven true about six and a half centuries after the Lord called him home when the great flood fell upon the earth. Yet this was just a partial fulfillment of Enoch's words. This, as we've referenced before, was an event oracle. It was an event that happened in time that confirmed and, re- and reiterates uh, and a, a pattern of God intervening in history what is to be expected in the future. That is to say, just as this judgment came against the ungodly in Noah's day, so there is an ultimate judgment for all ungodliness in the future. And this was the gospel, if you will, that Enoch preached. He preached redemption possible in his own life and assumption into glory by bowing to the Lord and to follow him, to place faith that he would make a way through the flaming swords guarding the gate of Eden. But he also preached that there is a judgment coming for the ungodly who refuse to acknowledge their sin, to repent, and to believe. So in this sense, in this context then, we find that Noah's ministry was preceded preceded by the faithful preaching of his great-grandfather, Enoch. And Jude reminds us of this context, or points to it. So implicitly in the context is this ancient record. Who was Enoch? He was one who followed the way of Abel. He was an icon of prophecies in himself and his experience of hope to be found in the gospel. And he himself was a gospel preacher, preaching repent or else before his great-grandson Noah would build an ark for the saving of just eight people who listened to his message, as it were. So Jude's words are clarified in part by answers to these contextual questions. Who was Enoch? Secondly, who are the holy ones? Verse 14 It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones. This reference to holy ones. To execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly, or all the ungodly, of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Who are the holy ones? In the Greek, the word here is murios, similar to myriad. And that's really what it means, an uncountable, an indefinite, incredible, awesome number, a terrifying multitude, 10,000s or 10,000s upon 10,000s, indefinitely large group of people or uh, a group of forces or resources, etc. These are, I suggest, the hosts of the Lord. Who are the holy ones? The hosts of the Lord. Jude, in effect, in this prophecy cited of Enoch, refers, in effect, he appeals to the formal name of God. That name of God, in con- or the concept of this formal name of God with, that is referenced here would be Yahweh, Sabaoth, 
we've mentioned before, the Lord is known as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Murias, the Lord of myriads, the Lord of ten thousands, an uncountable, indefinite number. Psalm 84, our worship text, uh, celebrates the awesome nature of our God and the greatness of his majesty as revealed by the ten thousands upon ten thousands who follow him, who obey him, who glorify him, who worship him and serve him upon his will and command. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. And who is this Lord that holds out this hope of dwelling with him? He is, verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Here the psalmist recognizes the personal nature and the particular call in the family line of Jacob, which goes all the way back to Enoch, even Adam and Seth. But he also acknowledges the majestic, awesome, terrifying, glorious power of our almighty God. He is the God of Jacob, and he is the Lord of hosts, of myriads of uncountable numbers who sing his praises and follow his will and his word. Lord is our sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor on us. He will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. And the psalmist closes, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The Lord of hosts is the one of whom Jude writes and Enoch prophesied. He is the one who will return one day with those myriads, that in uncountable number, to bring the day of reckoning and the day of judgment to fruition to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds. This is the Lord of hosts. Psalm 84 echoes this passage as does many other. It reminds us the scriptures point to, points out the reality that the Lord has at his, disposable, at his disposal, excuse me, innumerable resources, subjects, servants, and agents. How much does our faith grow for our daily needs when we remember that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills and that the myriads of livestock belong to the Lord? How much greater is our confidence against enemies, enemy nations, and those who rally themselves against the Lord and seek to throw off the chains of the Almighty? Psalm 2 comes to, man, to mind when we remember that the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and all who dwell therein. And then how much greater does our encouragement grow and our authority in Christ and according to his word, our confidence and faith in him when we realize that he is the Lord of hosts, of celestial beings and of his saints, that number is uncountable. And they follow obediently, joyfully, willfully, worshiping him according to his command to enact his will. Who is the Lord of hosts? And what is this concept, the Lord of hosts and Yahweh Sabaoth? It is, I would summarize this way, the glory of God as measured by angelic and redeemed human emissaries. The glory of God as measured by his hosts, those who worship him, as measured by angelic and redeemed human emissaries. The church in Jews' day and in our day is strengthened when we remind the eyes of faith of those stands in glory filled with an uncountable number, myriads of those who praise and worship him. Those who join us in worship 
of the Lamb who is slain are pictured in the book of Revelation as again an uncountable number whose voice is like the clap of thunder, mighty waterfalls, too many to count, praising and worshiping him. The Holy Ones includes us, if you know him today. Not just the angels, but the hosts who follow him and obey. In fact, angels, translated, is messengers, or those who serve him. And most broadly speaking, that would include not just the celestial beings, but all of the redeemed. The empowered saints, you could think of as the Holy Ones, who are the holy ones, the hosts of the Lord, the empowered saints. They're those who heed the prophetic calling to stand with the Lord and to proclaim whether they're Enoch at ancient times, Jude in the apostolic era, where you have this very small subset of believers and an intimidating pagan world, or whether you're in America today seeking to stand on the authority and sufficiency and inerrancy of the word of God and a culture gone to seed, Nevertheless, we stand and we echo as the empowered saints the truth that has been a reality from the first days of Eden to our day, our day today, heeding the prophetic calling to foretell the truth that although we might feel or seem like a pitiful minority right now, that in the church age at the beginning, there were just a few that could boast the, uh, the name of Christ and they were opposed by the great majority of their hour. Nevertheless, we join them today in our confession, and they join the saints who went before, and there is this in every generation, a throng of faithful who will one day be unified with those untold millions, the angels and the saints who've gone before, and the saints yet to come. And the idea is, look to the perspective of Scripture so that we proclaim with the same conviction and confidence as the angels who accompany Christ on his return. <clears throat> when he, Christ comes to return for his saints and to finally judge the world, imagine the hosts that are in his train. Imagine the saints and those emissaries who follow him and obey his command. Is there any fear as they leave the gates of heaven and rush through? You ever seen those movies where it's a decisive turn, the armies are rallied, and there's an impassioned speech, and the king summons his troops, and the knights and the horses even can't wait to go to battle, and they're snorting through their nostrils, the armor is gleaming, and there's this energy in the air. And when he finally says charge, everybody bursts, explodes through the gates and heads, headlong towards the enemy, and then there's a clash of swords, and this confident battle already won attitude and mentality of this conquering army as they slay their enemies and earn for their people a testimony of glory that will be written in the history books and celebrated at feasts for ages to come. We love those kind of movies. We love that kind of victorious celebration of overwhelming might. But none of these can even compare to that glorious, decisive battle in all of history, which is won before it is started. And imagine the saints of glory and Christ on his white conquering horse and all the saints behind him, be behind the gates of glory. And then they burst open and they rush towards the, the mission for which their general has commanded them. Is there a single angel in that parade, in that marching army that is nervous or shrinking back in cowardice or fear? Not a one. Why? because we serve the Lord of hosts. And his purposes are as sure 
as he is the Alpha and the Omega. And we should never doubt the one who created the world that his day of judgment will not be, will be decisive. We should never doubt. And so when we remember the perspective that Jude gives, we realize that we worship the Lord of hosts. Who are the holy ones, the hosts of the Lord, his empowered saints. This vision of triumphant and omnipotent reckoning is to set the tone for the authority and confidence of the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The Lord comes with 10,000s, an uncountable number of his holy ones to execute judgment. So don't be afraid and don't shrink back and don't despair when the enemy feels like he has the upper hand. No, the Lord is waiting for that moment in the fullness of time when he will declare fully manifest utter victory over all his enemies and he will do so with us if you know him. Those who accompany Christ on his return will join with the saints who've gone before, the Enochs of old, the saints who confess Christ now, and they will join the voices of the early church, not shrinking back when challenged, but marching forward in the confidence of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jude endorses the same reckoning perspective that Peter does. Who are the holy ones? We've mentioned the hosts of the Lord, empowered saints, but the word for holy ones is hagios, and that just means saints or those who are set apart, uh, quite literally, because of their likeness to the nature of God. They are different from the world because of their likeness to the nature of God. This is what the term holy, one, holy ones means in the original language. It's used throughout the scriptures and in the context here of persons, of services that God employs. It's used of those who are called and transformed according to the image of Christ. And in this way, this perspective that Jude endorses follows that of the book of 2 Peter. We've touched upon this before. Perhaps you recall this phrase, reckoning perspective, that we use to describe the encouragement that Peter offers the church. Just to remind you of this reinforcing similarity, we go back to 2 Peter 3. Uh, the apostle says in verse 1, Now this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says, knowing this, verse 3, First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. And they will say, you know, where is the promise of his coming? Yeah, I'm sure they said that to Enoch. You say that he will come with his ten thousands and judge the ungodly. Well, here we are 668 years later, and I'm living rebellious, fat, and happy the way I always have. They deliberately overlooked this fact, Peter says, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water. There was a time when the earth did not exist, and then it did. Why? Because the one who speaks into being said, let there be light. They deliberately overlook other things. Verse 8, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They forget that there was a time when the Lord snapped his fingers and the fountains of the great deep sprang forth and to the tune of 15 cubits, the highest mountain, was covered by the instrument of the Lord's wrath and judgment and only eight were saved. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of who? The ungodly. So Peter joins Jude in this reckoning perspective. We are to look to the Lord and his purposes in history to gain confidence and clarity for right now. 
and to aid our discernment in telling the difference between the ungodly and the holy, and to be encouraged even when there is a spiritual battle on our hands. Jude endorses with Peter a firm conviction of ultimate accountability as a metric for discernment. Ultimate accountability, we must remember that the earth will be accountable to the Lord. Those who acknowledge us, who live in light of this, that is, they live in light of the inevitable, awesome, and exhaustive, powerful judgments of God, they will find themselves steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord, having a perspective that will allow them to endure. This acknowledgement of God's utter judgments, of God's purposes in history, it is a standard that Jude endorses to apply sound judgment in evaluating the influences of our day. Who are the influencers of our day? That's even a popular term on social media, internet, society, culture at large, influencers. What about the platforms and the messages, the philosophies and the values, the books, the opinions, the advocacy, the activist groups, the leadership, the politicians, the politics, the priorities, and even the ministries of our day? And this sea of, you know, information saturation that we live in, how are we to judge between them? Well, one metric that Jude endorses is a reckoning perspective. How many of these that I just listed that you're familiar with hold out uh, or live in light of a day of the Lord to come, of his inevitable, awesome, and exhaustive judgments? This is an accountability metric for discernment. So those who live with the same oblivious sense of God's awesome power to judge and do not therefore run and cling to Messiah who died for them. They are the ones who fall into the ungodly category. And those who are holy are those who are made holy by the Lord himself and his gospel. And what do we do as the holy? We call out just as Enoch, Noah, Jude, and Peter did. Repent or else join us at the Lord's table. Join us at the table of the Lord, with, which prophetically holds out hope that we can go through that gate guarded by a flaming sword because our king priest, our sovereign savior, took that sword in his side on our behalf and therefore through his torn flesh we enter in to his fellowship and presence. Who are the ungodly? We've said several things about them already. Jude makes his point by repetition. He uses this term ungodly or ungodliness, a variation of it four times in this citation, verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is revelation by repetition. It's another literary device that Jude employs repetition, repeating four times ungodly and four times the word all, which means that ungodliness should not be overlooked. It should be identified and recognized as such. But it also means that there is total destruction and accountability for those who remain in their sin. All the while, he frames this situation in terms of an offense, of an offensive church, taking the uh, perspective of the of the ages and of Scripture and the vantage point of that reckoning, a perspective that we mentioned before, and sovereign history. There is an emphasis in Jude's words of the militant 
superiority of the holy over the ungodly and ungodliness. Uh, One way to, to say it is this, that Jude calls the church to join Enoch in going on the offense, if you will. To not see yourself in mere survival mode defending against your enemies, but to remember that if you are in Christ, you join the myriads of holy ones that sit in a position of authority as far as they are in Christ. To to do what? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Imagine a court situation. And there is, of course, the authority, the judge there represented, but there are also witnesses and testimonies. Now imagine a court or all of history And God the judge ultimately has the authority. But there are those who stand as witnesses for against the accused. And so we, being redeemed by Christ and standing for righteousness, stand with Enoch, Jude, Peter, and all the saints to rise to condemn anything that falls short of the standard of God's holy righteousness, perfection, and truth. In this, we join him in his declaration and sentence of judgment on all the ungodly. Another way to frame Jude's words is this, conviction is inevitable. If you are in Jesus Christ, that knowledge of the wickedness of your own sin came upon you with heavy conviction, a conviction that moved you to repent, to turn from that sin, to reject it, to stop self-justifying it, and to trust that Jesus died and had to die because of the wickedness of your own sin. This is what we call personal conviction. It's one of the first steps in repentance, of course, but there is convic- conviction is inevitable. If we, don't, if we aren't convicted individually of our sin and therefore repent and turn to Christ, there is a conviction on the final day. And we will stand with all of the holy ones and declare guilty in the name of Jesus for the unrepentant and all the evil forces who refuse to bow before him. These are the clear distinctions and dividing lines that Jude endorses. If we remember these truths in this perspective, in this reality, then we will be equipped to discern and to oppose, better equipped and, and, uh, to discern and oppose enemies of the church, enemies of Christ, enemies of his gospel. Who are the ungodly? Well, there's another, or these culprits we can better understand in context. In context of all scripture reaching back even to the times of Enoch, seed of the serpent versus seed of the woman, that antithesis that is marked the history of mankind, its legacy from the very beginning. Jude opens his book, uh, providing some explanation in verse 4. He says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, there's that term again, ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There are so many applications of this today, are there not? Anyone who would justify a revision of sexual ethics, for instance, or personal identity or social norms in the name of tolerance or the false idea, the, pro, uh, the, the uh, promiscuous idea of the love of the Lord, disregarding the covenant terms of the love and the acceptance and the grace of God. You know, this uh, acronym, DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, is one of the highest values of our day. And the new secular, ungodly religion celebrates this kind of thing. And what's implied in this is that no one is different from anyone else, but all in their subjective identity are on equal standing. 
And virtue and righteousness means accepting them as such. And this kind of perversion of un and ungodliness has increasingly affected the confessing church. We need the words of Jude as much as ever in our day. Why? Because there are those, like in the days of Jude, ungodly people who pervert, who seek to pervert the grace of God into sensuality, to mischaracterize the terms of the gospel and what the Bible speaks to justify sin or to justify revisiting things or characterizing things in the way that society prefers to exalt different terms of righteousness and wickedness and to create a false religion and to twist the scriptures to justify it. In so doing, Jude says, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not an ally. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's not just a influential, wise individual in history. He's not just one who is, you know, a ideal representing a high watermark to achieve. He is a sovereign. He is personal. He is, sa he is a savior. He has intervened in history. He has declared victory over death in the grave. There was a real and satisfactory atonement for the sins of the elect that was purchased at the cost of his blood. He is Savior, he is Lord, he is King of kings, he is sovereign, and he rules at the right hand of the Father. Those who exalt or endorse any framework of spiritual understanding that falls short of Scripture's unified testimony of the divinity and atonement of Jesus Christ are the culprits. They are the ungodly. They are to be marked and rejected as heretics preaching ungodliness. We will, therefore, if we are faithful to our call according to the words of Jude, reject and mark and proclaim judgment unless one repents for any who seek to diminish or deny. Remember the closing verse, the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the ungodly versus the holy ones. And we are called to walk in the way of Abel, the way of Enoch, and to recognize the distinction and to hold ourselves and others accountable to walk in the truth, to proclaim righteousness even in a day when there's some cost involved and where it's difficult. As we close this message and transition to communion, I'm, I'm reminded of several contexts which we've studied recently. Jude 12, for instance, these, he says, of the ungodly are hidden reefs, or you could say, some translations, blemishes on your love feast. They feast with you without fear. So though there are those who don't belong at the table of the Lord. They are those who are yet ungodly. Un the ungodly do not realize their own sin, and therefore they don't approach the holiness of God and the realm reserved for his perfection with fear, knowing that they don't deserve to be there. Much like Joseph's brothers did not deserve this another context point we referenced recently in our Genesis preaching, Genesis 43, an animal is slaughtered to make provisions for a royal communion feast. And the brothers freshly realizing their sins some 22 years after they sold Joseph into slavery, they know that they are out of place. This meal is expensive. It's in an age of famine. The cost of this meal is a animal is slaughtered, I, I suspect, purposefully, to indicate something symbolic to come. And here are Joseph's brothers quaking in fear. They know they don't belong. But God has used the grace of guilt and this meal to teach them something.
that they must bow their hearts before his sovereign authority, confess their sin as sin, and trust that he will make a way to save them, that he will raise up an unlikely servant to stand in their place. The cost of, that, of satisfying the obligation will come with the giving of the covenant son. The Lord raised up Joseph, a son rejected by the covenant family, as his very means to save his family from starvation. And then the very sinners who sold him into slavery are there welcomed at his feast after they come to terms with their wickedness and repent. And this meal is similar for us today, is an exclusive royal communion feast. And we are to approach it with fear, recognizing that in our sin, we don't belong here. We step into the presence of God knowing that we will be incinerated in an instant unless a way is made for us to be purified. So as we come to Christ, we confess our sins and trust that the covenant son was given in our place, Jesus Christ, the Joseph to come. Then the storehouses of glory are open to us and the famine of our own sin and the hell judgment it deserved uh, in the midst of this circumstance in a fallen world, the glories of eternal life and provision through the body and blood of Jesus Christ guarantee that we will feast at his table forever. And then the final reference we've touched upon recently is Hebrews 12, 22, which says there's a feast day coming where myriads, again, the holy ones gather, angels in festal gathering. And again, it touches upon our text today. Who are these? These are those made righteous or those who are prepared by the Lord sovereignly to be worthy of his feast. Other parables echo this. They are the ones who are given by the master of the household acceptable garments to enter into feast and fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are those who join the myriad of saints who recognize that Christ alone is their ticket into this feast that join in glory one day to worship him without end because of the great provision in his work on Calvary to redeem for himself a people. I encourage you to remember these things today as we seek to draw perspective from the scriptures and as the table of the Lord is uh, open and welcoming us as believers. So let us pray in transition. Father, we thank you for the message of scripture which clarifies for us the beauties of our salvation. We pray that you would use the proclamation of your word so that we take our great salvation not for granted, but return to the joy and the reality that in Christ alone, by his miraculous provision of body and blood, we are saved. Sharpen us and equip us, Lord, for the call of being truthful and proclaiming the gospel to others, even in a day where it costs us something. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the confidence, not of one who has anything in our own merit to boast, but one made righteous by Christ and experiencing the continued effects as you use even the word proclaimed today, to transform us into his image. I pray, Lord, that at this meal, we would approach with reverence, fear, and joy, knowing our sins are atoned for by what is represented in these elements. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.